If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open up to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, as you're turning there or turning on, whatever you, uh, however you read the Bible, I want to ask for prayers this Wednesday. Um, we have an organization that's going to come visit us this Wednesday called Send Relief. If you've never heard of that before, think um, American Red Cross, but Southern Baptist based. So it's the second largest relief organization on planet Earth. And um, they're coming Wednesday to meet with myself and Pastor Joe to record some interviews and uh, take some video about God's activity in our Finding Hope Center. Um, they're going to take all of that stuff. They're going to compile it together into podcasts and different videos, and that's going to be sent out uh, sometime next year on a national level to let churches across North America know what God is doing through our ministry center and how they can do that very thing in the community in which they live. And so we're going to talk more about that next week at the Big Give Sunday and some new partnerships that are in the works um, to really take the ministry of the Finding Hope Center to the next level. And uh, very, very exciting stuff. So if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, Galatians chapter 5, we're back in our series called God's Space, and we'll talk more about that in just a second. We're going to start in verse 7 of this chapter, picking up where we left off back in September and read through verse 15. Paul writes to these churches and says this, You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. You see, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. And I myself am persuaded in the Lord that you will not accept any other view, but whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished, and I wish those who are disturbing you might also themselves be mutilated. We titled this week's message, uh, That Escalated Quickly. And we'll explain what's going on here in verse 12. Verse 13, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, listen to this warning. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, as we jump back into this book of the Bible, Lord, 17th week that we've been studying through Galatians, Father, would you continue to teach us, grow us, mold us, and shape us into the likeness of Jesus? God, would you take maybe what are familiar passages and breathe new life into them, Lord, so that we, we would be drawn closer to Jesus this morning? God, give us ears we need to hear from you, Lord. Hearts, God, soft hearts to not just hear your word, but to receive your word, to do something with it as we walk out our faith the rest of this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago to be exact, it was a week of what I just call the week of disruptions for our family. We had left church, we had an anticipation of how things were going to be going that week, and as life tends to go, you all are very familiar with this, it seemed like disruptions were just following one after another. It started off with us springing a leak in our kitchen sink, not a big deal, I was able to repair it myself, I know you're impressed with that. Thank you, thank you, I appreciate the applause. Repaired the sink, not a big deal, and then the very next day, my girls that afternoon, late evening, were downstairs watching a movie. Liz and I were up in the family room. All of a sudden, I hear my oldest daughter, Sophia, start yelling, Colby, no, Colby, stop, Colby, no, Colby, what are you doing? To which Sophia starts screaming uncontrollably. We walk downstairs, and Colby, our four-year-old, has taken a small pink bead and proceeded to shove it up her nose. 
Um, it started off at the tip of her nose, then when she, if you've ever done this before, when you try to get a bead out of your nose and you stick your finger up your nose, the bead gets further up your nose. So that resulted in a trip to the ER that lasted over three hours, so that was exciting. They ended up taking a catheter, of all things, shoving it up my four-year-old daughter's nose, inflating the balloon, trying to pull it out. Seems stupid, right? It was. Um, four times they had to do that. Imagine being a father, you have to lay on top of your four-year-old as they're shoving a catheter up her nose trying to get a bead out. It was just, it was the worst. They couldn't get it out. We came home that night. She slept with a bead in her nose, which as a parent, you don't know where the bead's going to go. Next morning, woke up, went to the ENT. They took these other metal instruments, were able to get the bead out of her nose. And so it was just like one thing after the no another. That Wednesday, I went outside to grill, and I'm not going to give you all of the details, but literally, not exaggerating, almost burnt my house down, had flames shooting out of my grill that were four feet tall. It was, a scare, it was the scariest thing in the world, and I'm not going to explain all that today. But it just seemed like thing after thing, disruption after disruption after disruption. And at some level, all of us experience that. We make plans. We assume how things are going to go in our life, in our week, this next month. We, we think things are going to be normal. And then all of a sudden, these disruptions come that interrupt normal. Disruptions come that interrupt our expectations of what we thought was going to happen. And as we jump back into Galatians here, specifically in verse 7, we see Paul kind of speaking to this church about this gigantic disruption that has plagued these local churches throughout Galatia. If you remember, several weeks back, 17 weeks ago is when we started walking through this book, and we looked at some of the history regarding why this letter was written. Acts chapter 14, and you can turn there if you'd like to, but just to reference it briefly, Paul and Barnabas had come through that region. They had preached the gospel. At one point, some of the people in Galatia thought Paul and Barnabas were, were gods, and they began to try to sacrifice to them. Paul tears his clothing, tells them, no, 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 the true God is a man named Jesus. They leave the region. They come back, and what ultimately happened is people gave their lives to Jesus Christ, became Christians, and churches were started throughout Galatia. But shortly after Paul and Barnabas left and they were returning back to Antioch to bring a report of their mission trip, here's what God did among the Gentiles. They get word that a group of false teachers known as the Judaizers had infiltrated these Galatian churches, multiple churches, and started promoting this false gospel. That salvation in Jesus alone, Christ alone, was insufficient. But if you really wanted to be saved, it was Jesus plus you had to follow the law of Moses. Jesus plus living out the Old Testament commands, all 613 of them. But the specific one that they were bent on was the act of circumcision. In the Old Testament, that was the covenant sign of a relationship with God. And the Judaizers came in and said, yeah, you have faith with Jesus, that's good. But also you need to get circumcised as, as proof and evidence that will make God happy. And they were, they were adding to the gospel and Paul is lit up about it. So he's writing this letter to these churches, and he's like, look, we have this major disruption in theology. This is not what I expected to happen in Galatia. But throughout this letter, he continues to address it, and he's, he's doing it even more here in verses 7 through 15. Two simple points if you're a note taker and you want to write these down. Let's first look at this disruption yet again. We've, we've talked about this over and over, but it's the whole theme of the book, so we're going to continue to address it. Look at this foundation-laying verse in verse 7. Paul starts off four words, you were running well. If you have a paper copy of the Bible, I want you to circle that word were, underline it, highlight it, whatever you do in your scripture, copy of the scriptures. You were running well. 
Paul, it's very common in his letters, you can read in several of his letters where he uses athletic metaphors to illustrate biblical truth. This one being the idea of running. Y'all know my disdain for running and how much I don't do it, but we're, we're going to roll with this one this morning. What's the idea behind a Christian running? It's this idea of when I've placed my faith in Jesus that I begin this race, not a sprint, but a marathon that is the Christian life. That the starting line was when I repented of my sin and put my faith in Jesus, and the finish line is when I cross over into eternity. And what do we do as we're, as we're running this race? We read in Hebrews 12, verse 2, that we keep our eyes fixated on Jesus because he's the author of our, of our faith and he is the perfecter of our faith. That's how we run as Christians. Every day I get up pursuing Jesus as my goal. That's what God has called us to in this race. And Paul tells the Galatians, man, when I was there the first time in Acts 14, Y'all got a little weird in the beginning. You thought that we were gods, but eventually the Spirit opened your eyes to the reality of Jesus. You repented of sin, and you've chosen to follow Him, and you were running well. That word well is actually, we could translate that, you were running with excellence. You were running in grace, believing Jesus, pursuing Him, letting the gospel shape your lives. But it didn't last long. Look at the next part here in verse 7. He says, you were running well, and who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? You were running well, and then these false teachers show up, and they, they sell you on this now legalistic form of religion. That for some reason, you thought Jesus was enough, and now you're believing that your self-effort somehow makes you right with God. That, that phrase there, I want you to circle this as well, this, that phrase of being uh, prevented or persuaded regarding the truth. This is such an incredible word picture that Paul gives us here. It's Again, it's an athletic metaphor. And, and what it is, is you imagine this person running. As you can tell, I'm such a great runner. But imagine this person running, and they're running down, they're running their race. And this idea of being prevented or per persuaded from the truth is this idea of a person running, and then out of nowhere, somebody else comes and just slams into them and takes them off course. Somebody was running their course ahead of him, and out of nowhere, this guy comes from out in the trees and just smacks you and totally changed the direction that you were on. That's what Paul's communicating to this, this church here. You were running well, but false theology came in and changed your course. Now you're not even running the same race anymore. You're not even running towards Jesus. You're running towards your own self-effort. You were running well, running towards Jesus, but something has stolen your attention and affection from Jesus Christ. And now all of a sudden it's off of him and onto you because somehow you think what you do is going to get you right with God. It was on grace, now it's on legalism. Let's step out of this, this chapter for just a moment. This principle is so important here because I don't know about you, I've seen this principle play out in my life. I've seen this principle play out in the lives of people I love so much that people were running well with Jesus. And then what happens? Something intersects their race and they begin running a, a different course. They were running well with Jesus. Something intersects their path and now they're running in a different direction. Let's just, let's just call out a few of them. You were running well and then you had this new relationship that you decided to get in that's stealing your affections from Jesus and you're not running towards him anymore. You were running well, but then you were sidetracked by a new vocation that you have to pursue that's preventing you from pursuing Jesus anymore. You were running well. Let's just say it, all right, it's 2021, it's America. You were running well, and then you allowed your politics to steal your affections from Jesus. 
you were running well, and you let someone or something slam into the side of you and cut you off of the race that Jesus has chosen for you and called you to. Your eyes were supposed to be fixed on him, but now they're fixated on something else, and you're no longer running the race that Jesus has set before you. You were running well. Paul says you're not anymore. And, and think about this here. This is what's so important. Sometimes when we were running well, something intersects the path, and now we're going on this race. You know what the tendency is? We, we all do this. We justify that thing as from God. Well, well, God put this in my path. He changed my course. He's called me to this. Paul addresses it right here. Look at here. Paul says, all right, you were running well. You allowed legalistic religion to get in. But he says in verse 8, Pastor Joe talked about this in that last song. He says, this persuasion, this thing that you're now pursuing does not come from the one who calls you. That, that persuasion, this race that you're now pursuing, it is not from God. Friends, Galatians-specific, self-sufficiency as a means of salvation is never from above. Self-sufficiency as a means of getting right with God is never from Jesus. The God in heaven, the God who is now seated on his throne that Revelation 4 talks about, will never point to you as the means of your salvation. He'll never do it. That God from eternity past to eternity forever will always point to Jesus 100% of the time. He'll never point to you as somehow being awesome. No, no, no. That God says that we're wretched sinners and Jesus is awesome. And without Jesus, we are nothing. Yet the Galatians had convinced themselves, yeah, but God wants us to do this. He wants us to do these legalistic things as a means of getting right with him. Now look at this, verse 10. Paul says, brothers and sisters, we're jumping down one verse. We'll come back to nine in just a second. If I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? So the accusation from the Judaizers was like, wait a second. Paul had Timothy get circumcised so that he could minister in Ephesus. He must be preaching this circumcision. Paul says, no, that's not what I was doing. That was the all things to all people kind of thing. I wanted him to be able to minister well to the Jewish people. Paul says, but if I am preaching circumcision, why are they even criticizing me? Why are these people coming against me? Because if circumcision was necessary, if me doing something to get right with God was necessary, look at the second part of verse 10. Circle this. The cross has been abolished. If there was anything that you could do or I could do to get right with God on my own, then Jesus didn't need to die and he died in vain, is what Paul says. The cross was necessary, and there's nothing I can do in and of myself to get right with God. Paul says, I never taught that circumcision was a means of salvation. That's never what I thought. Listen, friends, let me say this one more time. Anything that steals your affection or your attention or your heart from Jesus is not from God. Whether it be legalistic religion, relationships, vocations, politics, whatever, it doesn't matter. Family, it doesn't matter. If it steals your affections from God, then that's not where God wants you to focus your attention, period. God always wants your affections focused on Jesus. But you can hear what the Galatian believers, these ones that have fallen into this false teaching, are saying because he's going to address it here in verse 9. What's the big deal? Why does it matter? Paul, it's just circumcision. Who really cares? What if we just do this little thing? Why does it really matter? This is such an important truth here. We're going to talk about this a little bit more. Small compromises in your theology will ultimately lead to big compromises in your theology down the road. You give a little bit now, you're going to give a little bit more later. You compromise your beliefs now as a follower of Jesus, eventually you're going to be willing to compromise more. 
you compromise things that you hold firm convictions on in your life right now, eventually, you know what's going to happen? You will compromise more down the road. Paul says it in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I'm not a baker, but I'm also not stupid. We all know how leaven works. You put a little bit of yeast and a little bit of dough, and what happens? Over time, that dough begins to expand. What does leaven do? It causes dough to rise and to expand and get bigger and bigger, and it begins to take over and change the composition of the dough in which the leaven was placed. How much yeast does it take to cause a loaf of bread to rise? It ain't much. But you put a little bit of yeast in there, what happens? It changes the entire composition of that dough. What's he tell the Galatians? Compromise on your theology just a little bit. What's the big deal? You're going to eventually compromise on a lot. Because again, let's take it for these folks. Religion is an ever-hungry beast. It's never satisfied. If you think that somehow that you can get right with God by what you do, it will never be satisfied because you always think that you're going to have to do more. I have to do this to make God happy, but then I have to do this, and I have to do this, and I have to do this, and I have to do this. And Paul says, no, no, no. Religion will always demand more of you. It always will. You'll compromise on this thing, and then you're going to compromise on the next, and the next, and the next, and it's religion will always demand more. And then what does he say in verse 12? I don't mean to be crude in this, but Paul says, if you're going to compromise on this little thing as far as your theology is concerned as a Christian, go all the way. Like, why stop at circumcision? Look what he says. I wish those who are disturbing you might be mutilated. Let me put that in modern English. If you're going to be circumcised, cut the whole thing off. Why? Can we put that on the radio? I don't know. I guess we'll find out this week. Why? Because if you think this little thing is going to cause you to somehow be right with God and make the way of your salvation, listen, it's going to demand more of you eventually. So just keep going. Religion never is satisfied. It always demands more. That's why we needed Jesus, because we couldn't adhere to religion. It was impossible. We needed a perfect sacrifice named Jesus. Let's step out of here for a second. Let's, let's take this principle with us for just a moment. This is so important. The overarching principle is this. Small compromises eventually lead to big compromises, don't they? Small compromises in our lives eventually lead to big ones. You give up a little, eventually you're going to give up a lot. Let's make it culturally relevant, Christians. Let's, let's just talk about the elephants in the room. We compromised on God's view of marriage over the last 10 to 30 years. Christians compromised. And do you know what has happened? Now marriage is destroyed in our nation. We gave an inch and they took a mile. Because little compromises ultimately lead to big compromises. We think it starts with just small compromises in theology. Who cares? We, is it really that big of a deal that we don't hold to a firm view of marriage? Yeah. Because eventually the devil's going to take a mile. And we're going to step back and be like, how did we get here? We compromised over the last 10 to 20 years on the view of sexuality. Let's just say 10 years that God created a man and a woman, a male and a female in the book of Genesis. Foundational principles of human existence. We've compromised on that. What has happened in our nation, in our culture, little compromise, big compromise. Now you're looking at hundreds and hundreds of genders across this spectrum that are being presented as normal in our nation. It's not. Theologically, the Bible says, no, that God created a man and a woman. That is biologically true. 
But Christians, we gave it up. We compromised. And what has happened? Destruction in our culture. Life. We, we see in Psalm 139 that life begins at conception in a, a woman's womb. Yet Christians, what have we done? We, we've given part of that up. Little compromises of, is it really that big of a deal, our views on, on human life, human flourishing, on abortion, on all of those issues? Does it really matter if we give up a little bit of ground on those things? Yes. Because over the last 20 years, what has happened? Little compromises lead, led to big compromises, and now our view of life is utterly destroyed. What do we see over and over here throughout this section of Paul's letter here? No matter how small, when we give up something small in our theology, the devil will eventually take a whole mile from us. Paul says, Galatians, what are you doing? You have to stand firm in the race in which God has called you to. You stand firm on the sufficiency of the gospel. You stand firm on the truth of the word of God. Because if you don't and you give up that inch, eventually you're going to get so far down the road that we're going to look back and go, how did we even get here? And what's the solution out? We can't compromise. So Paul transitions now in verse, verse 10. Next three verses he transitions, and he's really addressing those who have led the Galatians astray. Look at what he says here. I myself am, myself am persuaded in the Lord that you will not accept any other view, but whoever it is that is confusing you, he's talking about the Judaizers, they ultimately will pay a penalty. I, I love this verse here because it gives us a glimmer of hope as Paul is writing to this church, that although some in Galatia had compromised their faith, they'd given up that inch, Paul knew where that was going to lead them. He says, I still have confidence in the Lord that the Spirit of God at some point will awaken inside of you that this is wrong and that you need to come back to the race in which he has called you to. But what's interesting here is Paul does not leave the false teachers off the hook. This is such an important thing that we need to address here right now. God says false teachers someday will pay for the error of the things that they speak. They will pay for the error of the things that they speak. You know why? Because God hates when people take his word, twist it, and pervert it to further their agenda. He despises it with an utter passion. God hates when his word and his truth is twisted to lead people astray. And this verse leads us to believe here in verse 10 that there was probably a ringleader of the Judaizers, somebody that had showed up, and man, he was, he was the one that was spearheading all this stuff in Galatia. And Paul says, I just want him to know that if you, if you teach these things and you lead my people astray, you lead God's people astray, that someday you will face a judgment that you do not want to face. I want to show you a verse in Matthew chapter 18. I, it's, you can turn there if you want. It's one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible. My wife and I were talking about this two days ago. In Matthew 18, because it addresses false teachers. And in Matthew 18, this verse is so interesting. Jesus has this small child with him. And he uses this as a lesson of what salvation looks like. I love this. He says, if you want to come into my kingdom, then you have to come like one of these children, a childlike faith. That when we come to Jesus for salvation, to restore our relationship with God... We don't come with our chest puffed out, but Jesus, you owe this to me. No, no, no. We come as little children with nothing to offer, fully and wholly dependent upon Jesus to give us the salvation that we don't even deserve, completely trusting in him. But then Jesus warns this crowd. He says, and understand something. 
that if you lead away any of my people, you lead them astray from this faith that they've now walked into, careful. Let me, let me show this to us. Verse eight, uh, Matthew 18, verse 6. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away. So that's, that's Christians, followers of Jesus, specifically new believers. Look what Jesus says. It would be better for him if a heavy millstone was hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. He says, if you are going to be the type of individual that is going to pervert and twist the word of God to fit your agenda and lead people astray like the Judaizers were doing, it would be better for you if a giant rock was tied around your neck, you were thrown into the depths of the sea than the judgment that awaits you for twisting and perverting the word of God. That's terrifying. That's absolutely, that's a terrifying verse. Now, and my wife and I were talking about this yesterday, and she's like, well, what if you're not a, a teacher, like a teacher of the word? You know, Pastor Joe and I, we talk about this often. We fully acknowledge and understand that someday we're going to have to stand before God and give an account for the very things that we've taught from the scriptures. That's scary that we have to do that. But also understand this, that as a Jesus follower, you have influence over people. If you have influence over people, it means that you're a teacher, that you're, you're speaking who Jesus is into their lives. It matters what you do, what you say, how you live, how you interact, and how you act around people. And we have to be so cautious of what we say and how we live and what we do because we are presenting Jesus to everyone around us at all times. And I want to make sure, and I want you to make sure at all times, you're giving a clear picture of the Jesus that we claim to believe in. I want people to see a very accurate picture of who Jesus is, not only from my words, but from how I live as well. So let's sum this up real quick, and then we'll go to point two rather quickly. A lot of false teaching, a lot of compromise in Galatia, significant disruptions in this church, literally destroying, creating factions in this church. You got the camp of grace. You got the camp of legalism. You got the camp who says it's only Jesus and the camp who says it's Jesus plus all these other things, freedom and bondage. What's the solution for this church? How are they restored? Point number two, how, how would restoration occur in Galatia? Paul says it in verse 13, 14, and 15. It's simply the word love. Paul says, you've got two groups in this local, these local churches now in Galatia. You've got the ones following the Judaizers and the ones that were following Jesus. They were following the teachings of Paul. And literally, from what we understand here in Galatia, this is creating divisions and factions in this church. And Paul says, here's the solution. You've got to start loving one another. You see, because those who had believed the Judaizers' false teaching were looking at those who followed Jesus and said, those people are just abusing grace. They know that they're Jesus followers, and they're going to use that freedom in Christ to just do whatever they want. No, it's not true. That wasn't true at all. That's not what they were seeking to do. Then Paul looks at this law group who's over here saying, well, yeah, we, we believe in Jesus, but we have to do this, do this, do this, do this, because that's going to make God happy, and then he'll be pleased with us. Paul says, actually, verse 14, the whole law is summed up in one word, love. You've got to love one another. Stop worrying about all these other things and learn to love your brothers and sisters who sit across the aisle from you in that church. That's where solutions were going to come for these people. It wasn't about these factions, Paul says. He's like, you've got to stop it. You've got to quit. You've got to learn to love one another just as Christ has loved you. Now, does that mean that the false teaching didn't need to be called out? Daggone it, yeah, it did. You ever heard that phrase before, speaking the truth in love? They needed to be called out for the nonsense that was brought in by the Judaizers. There was a way to do it and a time to do it, and there was a how to do it. Through love, Paul says. You are biting and devouring one another. 
And it's going to destroy this church. Look what he says in verse 15. He says, if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you're going to be consumed. Those words bite and devour, that, man, those are actually terms in the Greek that were used of wild animals and rarely used of humans. That's why they're so significant in what Paul writes here. Because to bite, we think of that and you just think, of, you know, whatever, a little chihuahua biting your ankle. That's actually a harsher term that means to lacerate with your teeth. Think of something with large fangs that absolutely just rips apart the flesh. We think of the word devour. That's a, that's a term there that actually means to, to take something and to just consume it as rapidly as you possibly can and to gulp it down without even chewing, basically. And, and what's he warning this church of? He says, you've got all these accusations flying all over the place in this local church. Friendships are being destroyed. And you're devouring one another. And this church is going to be, these churches are going to be destroyed if you don't do something about it. What's it going to take? You've got to start loving one another. Confront false teaching in love. Correct theology in love. Love those who might not think exactly like you do, but correct the things that are biblical that they're wrong on. You've got to start loving one another because love has the ability, friends, hear this. Love has the ability to correct, to restore, to walk with, but also to look in the mirror at oneself. That's what love lived out looks like. It's not just pointing the finger going, oh, you got, Joe, you got this wrong. You are the worst. Man, the Bible says this and you live that way. What a loser. That's not what love does. Love says, Joe, the Bible says this and this is an issue in your life. I want to walk with you to correct this. Let's correct this theology together. P.S. I'm going to turn the Bible this way as well and correct what's wrong with me. That's what Paul was calling the Galatians to do. Let me give you three applications real quick and then we're done. First off is this. Take regular inventory of your life. Take regular inventory of your life. Ask yourself these questions on a regular basis. Is there anything in my life right now that is stealing my affections from Jesus? Is there anything in my life right now that is stealing my connection to my local church? We said this last week. We think the local church is a big deal. It's not optional. It's actually critical for the Christian. This is the primary method of discipleship in your life and my life. It's so important. Christianity is not a personal faith just to be lived out. It's a corporate faith to be lived out. We need the gathering of the local church. Is there anything that's stealing your connection and affection for Jesus or your connection to the local church? Lastly, is there anything that's distracting you from the race that Jesus has you on? If so, eliminate it. If so, man, kick it in the gut and put it back in the curb. That dude that came out of the woods to take you off your path, man, kick him in the rear end and put him back in the woods. Get him out of your way. You say, no, I'm running my race with Jesus, pursuing him, the author and perfecter of my faith. Take regular inventory of yourself. Point number two, application. Are you compromising anything that God is clear on? God was so clear to this Galatian church about what salvation took. It was Jesus and Jesus only. There was nothing else that needed to be added to it. Ask yourself that question, is there anything in my life that I've allowed to compromise, whether it be in my theology or the way that I live? It may not seem like that big of a deal now, but what did we say? Small compromises lead to big outcomes. Small compromises lead to big consequences. Make sure you're taking regular inventory, but also asking yourself, is there anything in my life that I'm compromising on. Here's the third one, and I believe it's the most important, and we're going to close with this. Am I carrying any offense towards someone else in the context of my local church? Am I carrying any offense towards someone else in the context of my local church? Paul calls it out in Galatia. He says, you got this group over here and this group over here, and they're biting and they are devouring one another. Friends, ask yourself today, am I letting anything disrupt 
the unity that is found in my local church. Here's why that's important. First, if you are, hear me here, you are blatantly disobeying Galatians 5.10 of loving your neighbor. Blatantly disobeying him. You cannot have an offense towards another believer in the context of your church. It's impossible. You can't because the Bible says you're not allowed to. So if you got beef with someone, deal with it today and stop it because you are blatantly disobeying the word of God. Here's why this is secondly important. Paul warns them here in verse 15 that if we allow these factions to emerge in the context of our church, that it will destroy it. The Galatians churches had the potential to be destroyed because they were biting and devouring one another. We can destroy our church if we choose to hold grudges against people. Not only are we disobedient to the word, but we could be the catalyst for destruction. My, my, my. I wish I had a joke to end this with because I know that's heavy, but I don't. Because that's what God's word tells us. This is so important. So important. So let me ask you this question that we ask every week. Um, Do you know Jesus? We at Living Hope think Jesus is a really big deal. And that sometimes Jesus calls us to do very hard things like we're talking about today. But in the end, end of the day, when we talk about our Holy Spirit, we also believe that Jesus can enlighten our hearts to the need for a Savior. Because here's the bad news, that we're sinners. Here's the good news, that Jesus died on the cross. Here's the best news, that's available to you and I today. That we have the opportunity to have a restored relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And there's no better news. There's no better news. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you so much for this day, for your word. God, would you grow and mold, teach and shape each one of us into the likeness of Jesus. That God, even in sometimes in your word when we encounter difficult things that cause us to do self-reflection and self-inventory, that God, that we would do that with a willing, obedient, and humble heart. God, I pray that you would continue to teach us from what we've seen with these Galatian churches, not just in the area of our salvation, Lord. We know that is critical, and that's, that's so pivotal. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. God, even in these little things like we saw where Paul said, small compromises lead to big consequences. The importance of unity in the local church. All of these things were birthed from some bad theology there in Galatia. So God, do a work in our hearts and draw us closer to Jesus as a result. We love you so much, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.